Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message, you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. How good with the band this morning? Awesome job. Great job, guys. Thank you very, very much. That was really, really good. Um, this morning, um, you have to excuse me, I've been quite sick all week. Um, I know, hard to believe because I'm so anointed, too anointed to be disappointed. Um, but I was sick um, and I'm hoping that that doesn't flow over into this. So if I suddenly sort of bat my eyes and keel over, you'll understand. All right. So this morning I want to talk about sound bites, t-shirts and missing the point. And why I want to talk about that this morning is, um, is because I want to talk about... Uh, what happens when things lose their original meaning and why it's important for us to try and get back to what things actually meant. And I'll unpack that as we go along. I came across this list of um, words the other day that no longer mean the thing that they used to mean. Has anyone seen this type of thing before? Yeah, I mean, we're aware that it happens, but there were some things that I didn't know about, for example, uh, which is strange, I usually know everything, but in this case I didn't know. Nice... What do you think nice used to mean? It used to mean simple or foolish, as in, Reese, you're a nice guy. Okay? What do you think silly used to mean? <laughs> yes, <laughs> zing. Okay. What do you think silly used to mean? You're not, you're, not, you're not far wrong. It's been inverted too. It meant uh, worthy or blessed. There you go, okay? Naughty. <laughs> it actually meant to have nothing, to have naught, to be poor, to be without, okay? What about awful? Sorry, what was that? Amazing. Yeah, yeah, full of awe. That's exactly right. But somehow over time, things take on new meanings. They no longer, evidently, mean the things that they used to mean. But if we don't realise that it happens, then things can go a little bit awry. Things can go a little bit askew. So say, for example, um, I still believe awful means what it always meant because I've travelled in time from wherever it meant that thing and I live here now and I'm living amongst you people for whom it now has a new meaning. And I say, for example, like, who thought Jaken did a great job last week? Right. And I say, Jaken, that was a truly awful sermon. I mean, it was truly awful. You're one of the most awful preachers I've ever heard. And I've asked my daughter, Caitlin, to put it on our website. Hear this awful sermon by our awful preacher. Right? Now, you'd probably think that I was a little insecure and a bit of a jerk. And you would be right. But that's a kind of innocuous idea of what happens when words that used to mean a thing now become something else and we just continue to use them on. But it can be a little bit more serious than that. And, and failing to recognise that doesn't just end up in some of these comical things. It can actually mean that we can actually miss the point of some really important things altogether and begin to go on a very different trajectory. And that can have really big implications, especially if we think about it in terms of some of the things that we church people, we Christians, we followers of Jesus and the language that we use and throw around quite a lot. Stuff that we um, 
stuff that we say in our prayers, stuff that we just kind of put on our T-shirts, stuff, slogans that we use, memes that we put out, tweets, sound bites, um, all of these things that to us are kind of like they're our vernacular, they're our language, they're the stuff, they're the stuff we say all the time. But, but actually, what if they've actually morphed in terms of their meaning away from what they originally meant? What if we mean by some of these things? Whoops. You know how I said things might go a bit funny? No, 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 no. Sorry. Um, no. Sorry. No, I'm, I should be all right. Sorry about that. Ooh. Uh, yeah, that might be a good idea, thanks. Father God, we pray for Adrian now. Bring your healing, Father. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Strengthen him, heal him, fill him. Enable him to speak the words that you've put on his heart. We bind all attack of the enemy. Anything that is afflicting him, we command you to be gone in Jesus' precious name. We claim the blood of Christ over him. And we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. We shall... Oh, thanks very much. Gee, that's a bit sad, isn't it? <clears throat> we'll... Um, thanks, honey. Thanks, everyone. Sorry about that. Just had a bit of a, bit of a turn. Okay. So what does it mean in terms of the language that we use, um, the stuff that we throw around so freely? What if that sort of stuff has actually morphed? Well, I want to unpack it a little bit because last week, Jacob spoke on uh, a dangerous invitation... And um, the reason I've, I found that really interesting was because something had been kind of brewing in me that I wanted to talk about. And when he started to talk about that, it was kind of confirmation to me that I was in the right thing. Because while he was saying that and talking about a dangerous invitation, the whole time before that and, prior, and, and subsequent too, I've been thinking about, well, what is it about the invitation of Jesus that makes it dangerous? When we say a thing is dangerous, what is it we exactly mean by that? I mean... What about it makes it dangerous? What, what about it makes us dangerous to the point that it actually then becomes dangerous for us? So the downside to being around something a long time is that you actually think you know something really well, yeah? And when you think you know something really well, you stop thinking that there's any more to really discover about a thing, yes? Okay, it's true in relationships, it's true in a whole range of things. So when we're around something for a long time, we stop thinking that there's anything more to discover, but there actually is. I mean, what do we mean when we say things like take up a dangerous invitation? What does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to count the cost? What does it mean to lay down our lives? You know, all of this stuff that we say so regularly as Christians, and as I say, we read it in our Bibles, we pray, we put it on T-shirts, we do all sorts of stuff. But well, for us, it's come to be a bit of a metaphorical thing, a way of saying that we're actually prepared to give up stuff, which is, which is fine, it's true, that is exactly one of the applications of that. But we need to remember that when Jesus originally said that, he wasn't speaking metaphorically, was he? Jesus wasn't speaking metaphorically. He was, wasn't challenging people to give up Netflix or stop getting hammered on a Friday night at the club, was he? He wasn't challenging people to get out of bed on Sunday and come to church, which is kind of, that is taking up some people's cross, yeah? 
all right? He wasn't doing anything like that. He wasn't really speaking metaphorically. When he was challenging people to count the cost and to give up everything to follow him and to take up their cross, he was literally calling them to to follow him to the point that it may actually cost them everything. It may mean literally taking up a cross. It could mean their death. So to sing about taking up your cross (laughs) in those days would be the equivalent to us singing about, you know, loving lethal injection or something, all right? It had a very real powerful meaning. And we've got to understand that the symbol of the early Christians was never a cross in those first couple of hundred years because it was too real and it was too raw. It was an instrument of murder and oppression. They used to use the ichthus, the fish, you know, the thing most all good Christians put on their bumper bars, all right, and then drive like maniacs, okay? (laughs) It's a really good witness, isn't it? But the cross was never a symbol of Christianity. That didn't happen until the 4th century under Constantine and after crucifixion had actually been abolished. But why was it so dangerous to follow Jesus? I mean, this is what I want us to get to. Peel back the layers and say, we use this language, but why was it so dangerous? Well, we've got to remember they didn't kill Jesus because of theological differences. Jesus was killed because he was proclaiming a rival kingdom. Jesus was proclaiming a kingdom that challenged the authority of the Roman Empire. That's why he was killed. And when they crucified him, if you remember the crucifixion story, they put a sign on his cross that said, King of the Jews. Now, they were taking the mick out of him, but that was actually the charge on which he had been tried, found guilty and executed, right? He was charged with treason as being, claiming to be another king. And the religious leaders who wanted him gone, whether they really believed that he was a king or not, there was enough evidence there to suggest in what he was saying and what he was about that that was a claim that he was making. And that's why they were able to hand him over to Pilate. And Pilate was able to have him executed. You can't challenge the powers that be, the political or the religious ones, and walk away from that sort of stuff unscathed. In everything that he said... And we were looking at that in just the table practices a couple of weeks ago. Everything that he did, he challenged it all. He was launching a rival kingdom on earth. And when Pilate questioned him and said, are you a king? What did he say? It is as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world. Now again, this is, that's a horrible translation that we have in our Bible that kind of fits our narrative about Christianity being something to do with otherworldly stuff. What it actually literally says is my kingdom does not originate from this world. It is not from this world, but it's a kingdom for this world. You with me? This was it. Jesus wasn't going, oh, you don't need to worry about me. My kingdom's in heaven. It's not going to impact on you. No, no, no. He says, you're right. I am a king, but my kingdom, my kingdom is not from this world. It doesn't originate from here. But guess what? It is absolutely for this world. Last week, Jake was saying this, you know, we are citizens of another kingdom. Again, we talk about that. We even sing about that sort of stuff. We thought about what that actually means. And again, that meaning has morphed into something else altogether, like it's about having a visa for heaven when we die or in a shorthand way of saying we're saved. But it's much more about that. It is about our allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom while we are still alive. And that means something. 
I mean, we do these things when we baptise people, and I've, I've done this too, and I've had to really stop and think about what I'm doing, right? And whether or not I would do it again. But when we baptise people, we say, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Right? And on the face of it, it's like, well, that's good. That's the language we use. That's what we, that's what we do. And when we talk about getting people saved, I don't know if you ever saw this, maybe it's a little more sophisticated these days, but there used to be these little tracks, these illustrated tracks out. And to explain to people what was happening when you were actually being saved or going to be saved, there was a little picture of you with your heart, and in your heart had a throne. Does anyone remember that? And who was sitting on the throne of your heart? But when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, who sits on the throne? Jesus sits on the throne. So when we say to people, do you accept Jesus to be your personal Lord and Saviour? That, that kind of means that, that he's restricted to this kind of space, yes? The reality is no. Jesus is not our personal Lord and Saviour. Jesus is Lord full stop. Full stop. What were we singing today? All hail King Jesus. All hail the Lord of what? Heaven and earth. They're not empty words. Them's fighting words. Right? They are. Them's fighting words. To say that Jesus is Lord is not to say that he has jurisdiction over this piece of personal real estate or that piece of personal real estate. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is Lord, full stop, over heaven and earth, over all of creation. You know, at Pentecost, when everyone thought that people were drunk because they were speaking in tongues and all sorts of stuff was going on, Peter was saying to the crowd of people who were watching, who were Jews, who were there for the Feast of Pentecost, he was saying to them, hey, listen, don't, what you need to know is that this is the fulfilment of what God has promised through this Jesus. And let, you, let me let you all know right now that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Saviour. He is Lord of all. Full stop. Not my personal Lord. When, I, when we baptise people, we should be saying to people, not do you make him Lord, but are you going to bow the knee to the Lord? Are you prepared to live as if Jesus is Lord, not simply adopt him into your life to be in charge of your internal affairs? Are you prepared to follow the way of Jesus? Are you prepared to be a citizen of the kingdom and whatever that means. So our allegiance goes way beyond our own private faith and private lives. And Paul was someone who really understood this. And as you read through the writings of Paul, you see that he begins to draw this stuff out quite clearly. So there are this terminology and phrases that Paul uses a lot, that we use a lot, right? Things like Jesus is Lord. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved than the name of Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Prince of peace. Have you heard all of that stuff? We sing all of that stuff, right? All of that stuff that we bandy around today. But it meant something very different then to what we are making it mean today. And let me tell you where it started. It started with an egomaniac called Caesar Augustus, you know, the guy who had the census done that caused... Um, Joseph and Mary to have to travel from, from Galilee down to Bethlehem, right, in Luke, that Caesar Augustus. He'd started it, but the Caesars all picked it up. But they used to say things like this, right, that he was, in fact, the son of God in the flesh. He was the prince of peace who had come to restore all of creation. The good news 
was the euangelion, the evangelism, the word from which we get evangelism. And the good news was that Caesar was Lord and he had secured peace and security of the world. Their slogan was that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than that of Caesar. And towns and villages that were prepared to stand by this declaration were called ecclesias, a word we translate church. So what we need to understand that when Paul was using these terms, he was deliberately co-opting the terms of the empire and Caesar of his day and making rival claims. So these were not Christian statements. These were empire statements. These were statements about where genuine authority lay. And what Paul was doing was saying, um, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus, not Caesar. The good news is not that Caesar has secured your peace and safety. The good news is that Jesus has secured your peace and safety. Did I say Jesus twice? No, I meant Caesar, Jesus. Okay, okay, brain. Okay, the good news is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace not Caesar, and that people who are prepared to stand by these statements and to live by them, these are the ecclesia, the church. People who gather around these statements and are prepared to stand by them and to live them out, that Jesus is in fact Lord. You're starting to get the picture? So Paul and those early followers of Jesus, they weren't killed for starting another religion. They were persecuted and killed for preaching another kingdom and living in allegiance to that kingdom and to another king. The things we sing about got you killed. Yeah? The things you sing about got you killed. So people aren't threatened by a faith that's all about my personal beliefs and where I go when I die. They'll let us have that. They're not concerned with a faith that puts Jesus in charge of afterlife affairs. Okay? They're concerned about a faith that is going to impact in the here and now. They get really touchy about a faith that has to say about things in the public space, about a Jesus that's radically committed to truth and to justice, about how we live this life while we're alive, a Jesus who who is not concerned about just where we go when we die, a Jesus whose kingdom is very much for this world, a Jesus and his kingdom that aren't just for private practice, they're for public proclamation and manifestation. And when that kingdom clashes with the established established kingdoms and powers and authorities there is trouble yes this is what Paul talks about when he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood it's against what principalities and powers and we often think oh that refers to these big demonic entities but he's saying yeah there is real evil in the world but those principalities and powers could easily be translated systems and structures the systems and structures of rival kingdoms whose power lies in that other than Jesus. So to to say that we are citizens of another kingdom means something beyond I'm going to heaven when when I die. It means our allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom must always supersede all other allegiances in the here and now. And when it comes to it, sometimes that will cost us. There was a movie made in the early 90s. I don't know if many of you guys ever saw this. Um, but it was about Archbishop Oscar Romero in El Salvador. Has anyone seen it? It's simply called Romero. Fantastic film. But it's based on a true story. And what happened in El Salvador was that there was a military junta that was running the country and they were just disappearing people left, right and centre and murdering people. And, you know, anyone who stood up to them just died. 
And they were looking, El Salvador being a Catholic country, they were looking for a new archbishop and they decided they would pick Oscar Romero because he was just this really quiet, nerdy guy and they didn't think they'd get any trouble from him. And when they approached him to do it, he was like, no, you really don't want me, I don't want to do this. And they're like, no, you're the man for the job. Basically, you're having this job. And there's this scene where he walks out into a field and he stands there and his legs just buckle underneath him and he collapses because he's just realised that to do this is going to get him killed. Because he can't just be a puppet of the regime. He can't just go and do what they want. If he's going to do this as a servant of Jesus, as someone who belongs to the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom, he's going to have to live out the values of Jesus, yes? He's going to have to live out the teachings of Jesus and that is going to bring him into direct conflict with these other people and ultimately it's going to cost him his life. He knows that. And he picks himself up and he walks back into it. And they do. They shoot him one day while he is celebrating Mass in his church. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be looking for that. I'm not saying that, you know, that is the only way that we count the cost. That is the only way that we can take up our cross as followers of Jesus. You know, we're pretty privileged to be living in a country where it really doesn't cost us to that level. But millions of people actually don't. I guess my point in all of this is when we say this type of stuff, we need to kind of reverse engineer it a little bit because we need to say, what are we actually mean when we say that? Because if it's actually, if we mean what we're saying, it should be costing us something somewhere along the line, yes? If we're serious about this, it should be costing us somewhere along the line. And I don't mean that we alienate all our friends because we carry on like a self-righteous pinhead, all right, and start, you know poo-pooing everything they're doing and being all holier than thou. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes we count that as persecution and it's like, no, you're not being persecuted for righteousness, you're being persecuted because you're a pinhead, right? And there's a big difference, okay? And we've all done that, haven't we? I have, okay? I've, I've been an absolute pain in the bum. Um, and, you know, you could easily go, oh, well, I'm just being persecuted because I'm standing up for Jesus. Actually, you're just a jerk. Like, really, that's all there is to that. But if we say that there is a price to be paid, a cost to be paid, a cross to be carried, if we're not paying some type of price somewhere along the line, we've got to ask whether or not we've really understood what it means to be a part of this kingdom. Haven't we? If, if we're taking an approach which is really, I'm just going to keep it between me and God and I'm going to keep my head down and I'm just going to get on with my life, then that's not what we signed up for. We signed up to stand up for the things that Jesus stands up for. And when we stand up for the things that Jesus stands up for, when we stand up for the things that are about the kingdom, that will always in some way bring us into conflict somewhere and will cost us at some point. Yeah? You know, I, I, can, only, I can think of one time for me personally where it actually cost me my job, where I had to do that. And then I remember a time in the army when, we were, when I was part of the operational deployment force and we were about to be sent overseas. There'd been a coup in another country and we, we were, um, you know, they flick the switch or whatever it is they do to make army people go places. And... And so, so we were going, and it became a very real thing that, oh, you know, we, we were collecting live ammunition, and there was this thought, because I'd become a Christian while I was in the army, and even though I wouldn't say I was like the poster boy for Christianity at the time, I still took my Christianity seriously enough that this killing other people thing was not what Jesus was about. And I remember having a bit of a, a crisis of conscience, like, would I, am I prepared to kill someone else? Now, fortunately for me, they attached me to a company where they made me the medic so I didn't have to worry about killing people unless it was through my own malpractice, all right? 
But at the time, it was one of those things where I thought, you know, this is, this is genuinely one of these times where if they were insisting to me that I was going to have to kill someone else, I may have to say I'm going to have to take a pass on that and then I'm going to have to take the consequences of what comes with it. And, in those, and at that time there, on active service, it was jail. So if we're not actually butting up against this, now again, that, that might be a quite an extreme example, but I'm sure we can all think of things in our own lives. Times where standing up, really, for the values of Jesus and the values of the kingdom are going to bring us into conflict and cost us something. I read a story recently about a man in Russia who was killed by a bear that he had living in his house that he had raised as a cub, um, as you do. Because he had it so long that he actually just really saw it as a pet rather than the wild animal that it really was. And I think that's the thing that familiarity does to us. Familiarity domesticates the wild gospel of the kingdom and we make nice metaphors and slogans out of some really dangerous stories but they never stop being dangerous stories. When you sit down and you read them and what they really meant then and there, that hasn't changed. They remain dangerous stories. Let me use another example of this. Like a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the table practices of Jesus and about how he constantly welcomed in the outsiders and the outliers, all the people that were considered the outcasts. He did that as an example of the kingdom that he was inaugurating and the world that he was actually creating. It was going to be a world where the people that didn't fit, according to some people, were always going to be welcomed and always had a place at the table. And we can get all cutesy with this stuff. And we can talk about Jesus eating with prostitutes and tax collectors, you know, and we can make flannel graphs and cut out things and colouring in things in Sunday school and make songs about Zacchaeus and, you know, or he was a tax collector, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And we can make it all really, really lovely and, and nice. But they're not lovely stories. They're not lovely stories. They're actually dangerous stories. They're, they're provocative stories. They're seditious stories because they upend and demolish the social order, a social and spiritual order, that a lot of people were and still are very keen to maintain because it's what gives them power and control over others. You understanding what I'm saying? They, they, you know, it, it looks lovely. Oh, isn't that nice? Jesus hung around with people that no one liked. It doesn't mean that. You know, but that's what we make it. That's kind of what we tell the kids. It's kind of what we tell ourselves. Okay, the application for that is... We need to hang around with people that don't get invited out for dinner and then, you know, if you find yourself getting invited to someone's place for dinner, you wonder how they're thinking of you. Um, but, but that's not what they're saying. I mean, by all means, invite people that don't get invited, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story was bringing along people that had no place at the table, bringing along the people who were socially and spiritually stigmatised, bringing along the sort of people that you never, no, no self-respecting person ever wanted to associate with. And that was messing up the order of the world. In fact, that was one of the big criticisms of the early church in the Roman Empire because they had really clearly defined lines about households and about order and how things were going to work. And what happened when these Christians came along is they just started having houses filled with all sorts of people. And, 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 and they were ruining it. And that was one of the criticisms against them. You are messing up the social order. And they were like, too bad. This is the social order of the kingdom. And this is the way it works now. But we make nice stories out of these stories that were actually threatening. And, and the one we looked at 
a couple of weeks ago where um, Jesus specifically names the people who were excluded by the Jewish scriptures, the lame, the poor and the crippled who were not allowed to participate in the temple. He specifically talks about them getting an invite to the table. We go, well, I wouldn't have a problem with the lame or the crippled or the blind. I'd invite them to my table, yeah. Okay, but who are the spiritually and socially stigmatised people today? That's the challenge for us. There's no danger in me inviting the lame and the cripple and the blind along to me. That's, you know, I'm following the example of Jesus. Yeah, but it doesn't mean the same thing anymore. We have to carry that into our world now and ask ourselves, who are the socially and spiritually stigmatised people? That if we sat down and ate with them, people would question our own faith. People would question our own qualifications. Yes? Who are those people to us today because that's exactly what happened to Jesus the big criticism against him was he cannot be what people are saying he is because look who he keeps company with he is a heretic he is not the real deal you know I love that 1 John 2 6 says anyone who claims to belong to him must live as Jesus did literally must walk as Jesus did And that's fine when we're talking about being nice and loving people and maybe healing people and all of that sort of stuff, being close to God. That's fantastic. But when was the last time you were called a heretic? When was the last time someone questioned your orthodoxy because of something you said or a person you decided could participate in something? When was the last time you were called a heretic? I can think of a time I was. (laughs) Not very long ago. But doesn't, that, but doesn't that make sense? If it says that anyone who claims to belong to Jesus must walk as him, then if we're walking the same as Jesus, then surely the same accusations that were levelled against Jesus should be levelled against us, yes? That's why I say if we're not getting the same sort of pushback, we're not paying some sort of price, if there isn't some sort of consequence of what we're doing, we have to ask if we've even understood it correctly. To live as Jesus did, to stand up for the things that he stood up for, to to be a citizen of that kingdom means it's going to bring us into conflict with the things that already are and the powers that be. And some of those worst powers live in the church, not out in the world. We always think in terms of paying the price and counting the cost that it's going to be people out there that are going to go to town on us. Let me tell you, it'll be the church that goes to town on you first. It always is. Who was Jesus' biggest problem with? The religious people. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not just being dismissive of people and saying, well, if they disagree, they're just religious. We're entitled to our differences of opinion and whatever. But don't forget, it was the keepers of the gate, the keepers of the scriptures, the, 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 you know, the people who protected the temple. These were the ones that were saying to Jesus, you're out of line and you don't belong and you're out of order. So don't worry about being persecuted out there. If persecution's going to start, it's usually going to start within the Christian church first. I honestly, genuinely believe this, right? That if Jesus were to come back now, he probably wouldn't be accepted in most of our churches. I really believe that. I believe that his manifestation of the kingdom would make us all desperately, desperately uncomfortable. And I like to think of myself as pretty cutting edge sometimes. But I, I do, I do. It makes me feel good about myself. But, but, I, but I genuinely believe that, that I would be stretched by Jesus. 
And I would find myself going, you sure about that? Because I, I think we're all going to be out of a job if you keep doing that. Like, that's not going to end well for anyone. So, danger looks different in every day and age. I have an old ethics textbook from my undergraduate studies back in the 90s that were all the hot-button issues that the Christians were facing that were going to be the end of the world if we didn't handle them properly. Not one of those things is an issue anymore. It's now our new normal. The stuff that we're facing today, in 10 years, won't be an issue. There'll be new stuff. And then 10 years beyond that, there'll be new stuff again. Although, to be honest, I think the time in between crises is getting shorter. I think things are ramping up exponentially. And I think there are more and more things landing on our plate. So all the stuff, for us to be the church in this day and age, means we're constantly going to have to be thinking about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom in this time and space. What it means to say that Jesus is Lord in this time and space. Not, not what it meant back in the first century AD, right? What does it actually mean here, here and now? Not what it, not what it meant in 1975 either. Or 1983. The call to follow Jesus and live as he did and to walk as he did and to live dangerously is still the same today. That call's never been rescinded. But it's got to look different every time because the world we are living in is changing all the time and changing at a rapid pace. And we are dealing with issues that we've never had to navigate before and it involves risk and it involves cost, often from the church itself. Isn't it funny... How most of the people um, that we now consider who were ahead of their time in arts and, and, also, and innovation and all the pioneers, they, they were people who were never really appreciated in their time. Yeah? And, and there's this kind of example in the Bible with Jesus and some of the, the religious leaders. He said, oh, for goodness sake, you're building all these mon monuments to prophets and saying, weren't they wonderful guys? Can I just remind you that it was your forefathers that killed them? Yeah? Did, did you forget that little fact? Yeah. Hindsight's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Hindsight, you know. But you know what, guys? I don't want to be beatified in 20 years from now. I want to be celebrated now. Yeah? Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> See, the problem with that is it ain't going to happen. If we're worried about how people perceive us, if we're worried about what our image is going to be, that's why I like what Jake said last week. He said, I didn't want to preach this because I was worried about, I like being liked. And he's a people pleaser. He's pathetic. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? He is truly awful. Um, okay? And, he, and it, was, it wasn't saying that for effect. He meant that. He, well, I don't want to upset people. And, I, you know, I'm the same. Because for me, my equation is not like, what is this going to cost me? It's always, who is this going to cost me? Which relationship am I going to lose if I have to go down this road? That's where it's a really live issue for me. I don't know what it is for you guys. But, but for me, the cost is always, always in, in relational terms. And if you've been around for a while you'll know what that looks like. I've lost a lot of friends. I've lost a lot of people that I sat across the table from. Okay? Um, 
But that's the price that we have to pay sometimes in order to, to genuinely be as faithful as we believe we need to be to, to the best of our understanding. And I'm not claiming always right on everything. But if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, sometimes that's exactly where that takes us. I mean, who likes mushrooms? Okay, I love mushrooms. Mushrooms are great. Just thought I'd share that with you. I think I ate. I think I ate. I, I think you might be right, Reese. So you and those little fairies that are around you right now. Um, I tell you what, it would make this a lot more interesting. Um, but someone had to eat the first mushroom, didn't they? Yeah? Someone had to eat the first mushroom and go, that's delicious. And someone had to eat one and not really speak much anymore after that. We're, I guess what I'm saying in that is, you know, there's, there is an element to us, irrespective of the day and age in which we live... That means to be a follower of Jesus means to be a mushroom eater, the person who eats the first mushroom. It really does. Someone's got to be willing to eat the first mushroom. The problem is none of us want to do that because we know the risk and the cost associated with doing so. Yeah? But to be a follower of Jesus, to, to, to make those words have meaning, to say that he is Lord and he is King and that I'll lay down my life and I'll take up my cross and I'll pay any price, all of that stuff that comes so easily to us when, when the music starts soaring and we get all emotional, you know, that's going to mean something. And what it means is there will be a very real cost. There will be a very real price. It may be that person that you're very close to right now. It may be your job. You don't know where it's going to take you, but you've got to be prepared to go there. And if you've been paying attention to me over the last few weeks, I've been slowly sort of describing to you how Jesus and the early church were constantly pushing out the boundaries of their world. Constantly. Constantly. What we do is we tell ourselves that when the Bible stops, that's when the boundaries stop getting pushed out. That's why we talk about outsiders as the poor and the lame and the cripple and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. We stop thinking about who they are for us today. What are our boundaries? Just because that book stopped getting written doesn't mean those boundaries stop getting pushed. Are you with me? Jesus is still pushing the boundaries out. Still pushing the boundaries out. And today there are people sitting in our churches that would not have been able to sit in our churches 30 years ago. They would not been, have been allowed in our churches. They would certainly not have been able to be in any leadership or ministry positions in our churches. You know who I'm talking about? Divorced people. How many divorced people are part of churches and part of ministries and in leadership today? What happened we had to rethink things. We had to go back and we had to look at the scriptures and see what they were saying to us into our, our day and our time. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be about the kingdom that he's about. It means pushing into some of this stuff 
that typically we've been told is off limits. Don't forget, Jesus broke just about every law (laughs) there was to break. They were the boundaries of the day and he just went, no, I'm going to show you what it means. I'm going to show you what the fulfilment of that thing actually looks like, not just what the letter of it looks like. And that's what we are called to today. We have a vision that says we want to build the church of tomorrow by doing different today. I would love to push that out to build the church of tomorrow by doing different tomorrow because then I can just keep pushing the timeline out and just getting on with business as usual. But, man, I I don't even think the, the challenge for us is to build the church of tomorrow. I think the challenge for the church, for the most part, is to try and build the church just for today because I think we're so far behind in so many ways. We're not navigating the world we find ourselves in well as ambassadors of this kingdom. And we need to do much, much better. So our challenge is to live out what we think those words meant back then and there in our here and now. And that takes work and that takes courage. Amen? Okay. Thanks for bearing with me in that. That was um, a bit of a wobbly start, but we got there. Um, We're going to take communion now. Again, the table is open to everyone this morning to come and to celebrate through the body and the blood of Jesus this new kingdom that he has brought. To reaffirm and declare his lordship, not just over our lives, but over all of creation. And to allow God to speak into us about where we may need to do some realignment in relation to that. Okay, let's go.